Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from Los Angeles. Episode 17, Public Schools, Private Money. We're joined today by Dr. Shelley Arsenault. She's a professor of political science and public administration at Cal State Fullerton. And she's collaborating on an upcoming book called Our Kids, Our Money, and Our Schools, The Persistence of Inequality in Public School Finance. Yeah, so this episode isn't about like how to have a integrated PTA tips and tricks kind of a discussion. You know, before we get to that one, and we will, we wanted to step back and give a broader picture of private funding of public schools. And we also want to highlight how individual choices help to shape policy. Yeah. And Dr. Arsenault's work really focuses on the many ways that private money comes into schools, yeah. which schools it comes into and, and what the impact of that money is on the system of public education as a whole. You know, while her research is really focused on California, not exclusively, but mostly the lessons from her work are broadly applicable to all of the ways we finance public education privately. Yeah. So we recorded this conversation with Dr. Arsenault a few weeks ago. And since then, the Varsity Blues college <laughs> admission scandal came out, which is like the best thing the FBI has ever done in <laughs> Varsity Blues. But um, if, you, if for some reason you weren't following, you didn't see this pop up. It, basically, uh, an FBI operation that resulted in charges being filed against 50 people, basically for cheating to get their kids into high profile colleges or universities. Yeah. Charges include paying someone else to take the SATs or ACTs, paying athletic coaches to claim the student student was being recruited, even when that student had never played a sport. You know, the list goes on and on. And uh, Courtney, you, you wrote a great blog post about this on integratedschools.org. You want to tell us sort of about that blog post? Yeah, I mean, I think it was really about the ways in which we are really excited to rage against these egregious moments of opportunity hoarding, but that opportunity hoarding goes on all the time in a thousand ways. Yeah. And these thousand ways are legal. Right. So we can shame the people involved in the college admissions scandal for breaking the rules, but we can't use that to take away focus on the rules themselves that allow some folks to game the system and instead of shame, get like a good parent ribbon. Right. Yeah. I really like that piece, Courtney. And I think it highlights why we feel like it's worth having a podcast that is, you know, sort of white people talking to white people. And, you know, as we're, we're putting this episode together, I was just sort of struck by how much like the various ways that we create systems to perpetuate segregation, you know, the, the local details of this change depending on where you go. But there's this trend across the country, which is to find ways to further concentrate resources yeah. in schools where they're really the least needed. And if you're concentrating privilege, you're concentrating resources – you're necessarily concentrating vulnerability in other schools. That's right. In some places, it's PTAs. In some places, it's booster clubs. In California and other places, you know, where Dr. Arsenault has done a lot of her research, we see it show up in these education foundations. Yeah. All right, let's go listen to that conversation. Can you just define an education foundation? Yeah, absolutely. So um, an education foundation, and they can be called anything. Um, often they're called friends of or parents of, um, you know, our schools first is, you know, that sort of thing. It's a, it's a nonprofit organization, and basically it's um, a group of parents that get together and they form a, a nonprofit corporation. And typically their sole purpose is raising money for the schools, so where PTA has a lot of other purposes, or PTO, or a booster club may do other things, um, the education foundations are all about just raising money for the schools. 
And in general, are there any sort of restrictions on what they can spend that money on? Or it's really just sort of like general funds that they are not otherwise getting from state government or federal government? You know, my impression is that most of that depends on either the state or the school district itself. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, Chicago Public Schools will not allow that kind of private fundraising to go toward the salaries of normal everyday teachers. But... It is allowed to go for supplemental teachers. That might mean, you know, music teachers. It might mean librarians. And so there are not a lot of restrictions typically. And it's fungible, right? So uh, you you can only spend it on these things, but let me use it for these things. So then I have more money in my budget to pay the quote unquote real teachers or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. How do you think about the relationship between private money being funneled into public schools and, you know, maybe a decrease in funding at the state level? Like, is that relationship real? Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, in California, when Proposition 13 was passed, our state funding for schools dropped dramatically. And that is when the private funding and the private fundraising and especially parents fundraising for schools in California really started in earnest. And it has spread um, nationwide, actually. It looks like uh, most recent data I could find, there's probably 5,000 education foundations across the country alone. Oh my yeah. And over 700 in California. So again, we're kind of among the first and among the leaders, but this is spreading everywhere. And sorry, just uh, before we get, get too far away, could you just explain what Prop 13 was in California? Yeah. Well, if I can, um, Proposition 13 <laughs> the, the, was... The, the, the very, very Cliff Notes version. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, it was the start of the tax revolts uh, that swept the country in the 80s, frankly. Um, and it was, you know, our housing prices were raising dramatically and people's property taxes were therefore raising dramatically. And it was a big sell, particularly for um, senior citizens who were very often priced out of their homes just because they couldn't afford their property taxes. And so Mm -hmm. it really put the lid, very hard lid, on property tax revenues. And property tax revenues typically fund local schools. So it really limited the ability for local schools in California to raise funds. And so most of our funding comes from the state. It's very equal. It's just also very low. If you are in the wealthy suburbs and you can raise more money, you want to and do. So maybe this is a good place to kind of talk about all the ways that you can raise more money. Yeah, absolutely. So of course, you know, so there's this sort of thing that these education foundations, friends of, again, that are just raising money. There are, of course, the traditional PTAs that still exist and still raise money. Um, And then PTOs or parent-teacher-student associations, again, the sort of others. There are the booster clubs, which tend to be for the specific, for the football team, for the for the band. And then we see corporations. And so I'm not really talking like Gates Foundation money, but I'm talking about local corporations. So for example, a study I was just looking at in Wisconsin was talking about this area of Sheboygan County. And one of the public school districts is the Kohler School District. Well, it's Kohler like your faucets. Wow. They are able to, and a lot of that donation comes from corporate. They have a couple of other very large corporate entities in in the district area. Well, they're they're raising almost $900 per pupil from their fundraising efforts. And again, part of that is is corporate where a neighboring wow. community without Kohler is raising $27 per pupil. 
So again, wow. you know, the disparity is is there. It's real. And then there are those newer things. You know, there's the donor's choice that people can raise money through just like adopt a classroom things. And there's people are using websites that will collect money for, you know, any number of nonprofits. They're doing it for schools too. There's loads and loads of ways a kid comes home and has to sell the gift wrap or the cookie dough. Well, you know, there's a, a study, you know, 80% of parents in a, in a study a couple of years back had bought some of that stuff. 80%. 80%. Not because they wanted it. Well, oh, they always want, yes, all, all the gift wrap in the world. But, you know, that costs like $8 a roll. <laughs> right. But it's $1.4 billion in sales per year. Jeez. So paid by what 80% of the parents across the country and at best half of that money often what much less like i think 15% actually goes back to the schools right. and then at certain schools at that and then there's some tiny bit that pays for the product and a crap ton of that money goes directly back to the pockets of that corporation yeah i mean and that's not even counting the other ways we donate right volunteer hours Ooh. or grant writing mm-hmm. or you know all these other things that are donations in kind that we don't keep track of either. right yeah like my office is upgrading all of their computers so i'm donating all of our two-year-old computers to this school right, right. yeah i mean but it's not you know it's not just the computers and the stuff we give to the schools the the time that we spend the volunteer hours that go into it the mm-hmm. expertise that we bring to schools that also really makes a big difference right yeah yeah, I was at a robotics tournament with my son's high school this weekend. And, you know, we're looking around and most of the teams have parents who work at NASA who know how to build robots right. who are helping these kids out. That's just like time and, you know, and what you're saying, Andrew, as expertise, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, that's a, it's hard to account for those things, right? I mean, even, even if you make the money the same, you still have these disparate ways that parents are contributing to their own kids' programs. So I guess, why do you think this is a problem? You know, so I'm a political scientist, and one of the things that I value uh, greatly is the public sector, and in particular, public education, in part because if you want to have a democratic republic as we have, and you want to have people vote, and you want them to understand their citizenship, they have to be educated and we have to let them know the value of being publicly engaged. And so to me, public schools are an enormous part of that. They should be that great equalizer. And on top of it, they should be a great integrator of our students of different races and religions and socioeconomic backgrounds. And again, when that happens, when that is done well, I think we have a healthier democracy. I think we have a healthier citizenry. So I think that the the promise of public education is quite amazing. And I wish we would get there. Take it more seriously. Yeah. I, I'm playing devil's advocate, mm-hmm. but my ability to raise money for a school is showing my commitment. Why is that bad? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it's not bad. No one has nefarious impulses when they're collecting money for their kid's PTA, right? Hopefully, hopefully uh, no one might be a little strong, but yeah, <laughs> in general, at, at baseline, I think, right, the intent is, is, a, is comes from a good place, right. right? The gift wrap people are certainly excited. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the gift wrap people, but again, the average parent isn't, and, and that's part of the problem. The average parent isn't thinking about the other schools or the other kids in those schools. Yeah, exactly. They're just thinking yeah. about their own, again, which is back to the whole point of the public. 
Government exists to think about everybody, not just mine. If I am giving, and there are some education foundations in the state of California, and it may be hard to believe, but it's true, that they are asking for a minimum per student donation of $1,200 or $1,500. I've heard as much as $2,000 per student. So if I'm a parent and I have just, I have three children and I have just donated $6,000 to my local school or district, why am I going to vote for a tax increase that's going to go to schools. Right. I've just covered my own. And so from that perspective, we have a big problem. And then, of course, the other thing is all of the studies indicate that sort of marginal return on the money for wealthy students, you know, a, an extra $50, $100, $200 per student in a really low-income school is going to go a lot farther than a $500 or $1,000 per student increase in a wealthy school. You know, those wealthy students already have a lot of private amenities. They have violin lessons, and they have summer camps, and they have trips to the museum and trips to the symphony. They don't necessarily need school to introduce them to those things. That's already part of their lives. The family library is already large. They don't have to rely on the school library, where for a lot of families, none of those things exist. And this, of course, just increases that inequity. And that's the promise of public education, right, is to is to try to level the playing field, is to try to give all kids a foundation to start on so that they can be active, contributing members of society. Yep. You know, California in 1971, there was a Supreme Court case, the Serrano versus Priest case. And the Supreme Court case said that in this state, we want the same level of quality education for all students. Unfortunately, (laughs) what we have sort of a race to the bottom almost in funding. And so what we have is a low level of spending. This is what then makes parents say, whoa, this isn't good enough. This isn't enough. And again, we've seen that across the country as funding cuts have come. Again, the recession of 2008-9. After that, a lot of education foundations started across the country. More fundraising started. You know, it's sort of this is not your, your mama's PTA kind of idea started where hey, we really need to provide things. We need to provide librarians. We need to provide summer camps. We need to provide all of these things for kids because none of this is happening. For our kids. Right. Right. At our school, because like, (laughs) right, to like tackle this on a sort of global scale for all kids is overwhelming. But I can definitely like put together a pretty awesome fundraising gala banquet for my school and take care of it for my kids. Right, exactly. You know, I spent some time in the South, so there's that little bless their heart sort of saying, right? There are not particularly wealthy schools and districts all over the place that, bless their heart, they also have education foundations, or they really pump up the the fundraising for their PTAs. And it's great, but they may be bringing in $8,000 or $10,000 a year, which is better than nothing, but it's not the right. hundred and the three hundred thousand dollars a year that that some of them are bringing in. I know for years, Irvine Public Schools, which is you know, sort of south, you know, suburban south of Los Angeles, I think it was one hundred and fifty dollars a ticket, and they the prize was a house. What? Yeah. In Irvine. A house. <laughs> so I suspect they had, a, wow. you know, some parent somewhere was a builder or a realtor or, or both or whatever. And so, you know, for $150 a ticket, the grand prize was 
a home in Irvine, which was probably, I don't know, $750,000 value or more. Yeah. They raised a lot of money through that particular fundraiser. (laughs) You think? (laughs) (laughs) I'll say. Can you get a little more into sort of like what the data shows us about what happens when we are able to make the schools okay just for ourselves in terms of the sort of willingness to to raise taxes broad-based or find more money? Yeah, you know, and this is the step that no one in terms of the research has really taken yet. I think in part because it would be really very difficult to determine, you know, whether or not people in those more wealthy areas that are already getting their own are willing to vote for bigger tax, even at the local level, we know that if you don't have kids in the public schools, for example, you are far less likely to vote for any kind of increase. So to extrapolate that beyond, again, my school's doing fine. Why do I want my taxes to increase for everybody else? And again, all of those things we know disadvantage, you know, those without the voice, those without the money. You know, people say like PTA fundraising in the sort of scope of national education spending is a drop in the bucket. So what does it really matter? What's your pushback to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's true, you know, and it's, it is a difficult argument to make, particularly from the perspective of economists who study this stuff, right? Because they're looking at the, the aggregate numbers and they're looking at nationwide. So 50% of schools, you're talking about $25 per student, or less. That's not much, right? right? That's getting an extra book in the classroom or something. And only about 10% are getting, say, in the $250 per student or more, right? So again, you're talking about small numbers, raising enough money that it makes a real difference. On the other hand, for those that are in those 10% or 15%, the difference is dramatic. And you can have that sort of neighboring school that doesn't have any of these amenities or has very few of the amenities where if you could only afford to live three blocks away, your child would have the full computer labs and they would have, you know, in the high schools, television um, studios and, you know, the whole nine yards. So all of those things, again, are exaggerated on an individual, either school by school or district by district relationship. But then again, when you add in the fact that all of these extras are going precisely to the student's least in need right. and for whom they will do the least good. Right. It, right. It's it's only 10% of schools, but it is the already most privileged 10% of schools exactly. that are getting even more privilege exactly. from this fundraising piece. Yeah. And I think the research that you were just citing talks about, you know, how PTA money goes, but like you were bringing up earlier in our conversation, that doesn't speak at all to private corporations like Kohler. I know mm-hmm. close to us, schools and educational foundations are hitting up Warner Brothers Studios because they have employees who are also parents in the local schools and they can make asks in a really different kind of way. Yep, exactly. There's kind of a fascinating story about a not very wealthy school around the Silicon Valley area. And they were kind of highlighted in comparison to some of the wealthier school districts that, you know, in Palo Alto, frankly. So Palo Alto is where Stanford is. It's, you know, lots of money. And so their education foundation was raising money hand over fist. And a neighboring school had nothing, literally had um, clocks on the walls that didn't work. This is how bad it was. Well, those generous parents from Palo Alto said, geez, we have so much. Let's, let's help them out. Again, using their social networks and their business connections, they were able to connect with the Facebooks and the Intels and the whomever else is in the Silicon Valley area and get them to start 
donating to this really underfunded school district, which is awesome because now you have this high um, free lunch school that's getting all of this money from all of these corporate donors, which is awesome. But again, most of our schools that are in that those sort of dire situations don't have Facebook as a neighbor, don't have Intel as a neighbor. And so again, you still have that sort of disparities that are not right. But, you know, I mean, even if everyone did have a, a Facebook or an Intel, we're still talking about separate and equal, mm-hmm. right? Like that's that still hasn't moved us anywhere towards actually more integration. Yeah. You know, that makes me think about like the effort it took to get Facebook to adopt this neighbor school or neighbor district mm-hmm. was effort that wasn't being put at the state level right. to fund schools. Right. It's still just kind of like the finger in the dike, right? Like this like stopgap emergency mindset. I mean, it's also like raising $500,000 isn't easy. It is easier in some places than it is in others, but it takes a lot of effort to make that happen. Imagine what's possible if that effort is spent somewhere else, if that effort is spent on advocating for better pay for teachers or more funding for school districts. Right, exactly. And again, it's back to that same question of, yes, this may be drops in the bucket, but those parents that are raising the 500,000s and more, those are precisely the parents that know how, that understand the system, that have the connections, that if we were going to the state capitol to seek more money, those are the parents that would be doing it. And now instead, right. they're hitting up Mark Zuckerberg or whomever. It's, you know, there are limited resources. There are always limited resources. And this is now then sort of a diversion of resources that could be going to the good of all students in the state, going just to my school, my kids. Yeah. So I, I don't know how much you know about efforts across the country to pool their PTA funding. I have some big feelings about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that in Portland, they did sort of require at least partial sharing, which to me seems at least a step in the right direction. On the other hand, um, what we do know is when you are raising money for a single school, you are able to raise more per student. When you are raising it for multiple schools, the donations go down. When you are raising it district-wide, the donations go down. The bigger the district, the donations go down. So there really is this very real human emotion of, I want to give to my own. Is there a change in that? I'm just wondering if the trend is only increasing in that way, or is there any research on that? There's no research that I know of on that particular question. What I do know is the amounts of money from all of these sources, PTAs and PTOs and, and education foundations, et cetera, has been growing really dramatically over the past 10 to 15 years. I was just reading uh, an article, American Sociological Association, about the rise in income inequality in the country leading to more sort of parental investment directly in their kids. Sort of the idea that like as parents see, you know, a wider range of potential life outcomes for their kids, the pressure rises to do whatever you can to make sure that your kid goes to the sort of upper end of that. That when there was the impression that everyone was doing pretty well, there was less pressure. 
and the sort of more sense that we can all be in this together and that as income inequality rose and the idea that my kid could either end up down there at the bottom or up there at the top, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that my kid gets up there at the top. And the way my kid gets up there is by having more opportunities or more things than the kids who are going to end up down there at the bottom. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, I think it's a 2015 book by Robert Putnam, who's uh, it's called Our Kids. And mm-hmm. that's pretty that's that's ex- pretty much exactly what he says, right? I mean, he sort of paints this picture of 1950s, 1960s, when, as you said, there was less pressure to position our kids, you know, your own kid well. And and again, it was sort of a, a more, we're all in this together, we're doing this thing, and we're expanding. And at the time, we were expanding education, you know, it wasn't a given that everyone went all the way through and graduated high school, where today it much more is. But yeah, that's basically what he says is what we now have is these enclaves of wealth where it's all very focused on, you know, my kid and the, you know, the tutoring for the the SATs and the college coaches and that sort of thing to get my kid into the best schools. And, you know, and it starts with waiting lists to get into preschools. It's definitely a real thing. The housing values, right? That That's huge. This idea, I mean, and again, and there's research to indicate that, yes, in fact, people buy their homes based on the school district. Uh, and real estate yeah. agents sell homes based on the school district. Exactly. It's ultimately all about this investment in these kids, which seems to me a terrible burden to put on those poor kids, but... <laughs> In in my neighborhood, there's this weird little bump up of the sort of quote unquote good schools boundary that sticks up into the the sort of neighborhood. I think it was originally done to actually try to increase integration 25 years ago. And now like the result of it is that they're like a street where you pick up a house from one side and just flip it to the other side of the street. And it's probably a hundred or $150,000 difference in right. home price right. value. Yeah. Which creates like real political capital to push back against doing things like changing mm-hmm. boundaries or otherwise altering anything about a right. school district because because people have a lot of money right. tied up in right. that. You know, and you have a state like California, and I know lots of other states do this as well, where you have this sort of ability to pick your school, a sort of school choice thing. You know, in my own neighborhood, lots of our neighbors don't send their kid to the local high school. You know, they send them to some of the other, you know, maybe out of district, but in, in some of them, you know, they use a an aunt's address and the whole nine yards because there's some cachet to that school versus this school. I just found a a study. Economists have estimated that within suburban neighborhoods, a 5% improvement in test scores can raise home values by 2.5%. Yes. That's why real estate agents sell schools. That's why people buy homes based on schools. I, I just saw something again you know, it was something like 18% of people said they had moved for good schools. And more than 50% of that 18 is in the over $75,000 a year category. Not wealthy families can't move for schools typically. Right. But those with, with wealth move for schools. The increased inequality that we already see, none of this is going to make that better. Could you go back maybe for a minute to the idea of marginal outcomes? You know, is there any research or data that kind of points at kids who've been to these, could we say over-resourced or heavily resourced or disgustingly <laughs> resourced schools? Um, how, how about how about inequitably resourced? 
Andrew, bringing it home. <laughs> Inequitably resourced. I mean, I mean, it would be great if all the schools were resourced, you know. Disgustingly resourced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If all of our schools were disgustingly resourced, I think that would be not disgusting right. at all. That's right. <laughs> so for the for the kids who who are going to the Irvine schools where they sell raffle tickets for a house, is there some metric by which you actually see some increased value to the enormous amounts of money being poured into specific schools and not others? In our study, this is a question that we do ask. We don't look at where they're getting into schools per se, but the one thing that we can address, California has a requirement to get into either the California State or the University of California systems. There are these graduation requirements, right? All high school students must take the A through G. So that's sort of the closest we can get, basically, UC, at a four-year university ready. And yes, <laughs> the students in those school districts are more likely to be university ready. The classes are readily available. The counselors know this. The, the expectations are that everyone will go to a four-year school. So while part of it is probably about the resources in terms of the teachers and the materials and the computers, it's also about all of those other things that we can't measure so easily. Some of these questions, unfortunately, are really difficult to answer from social science perspective, but you know, we can get close enough that we have some patterns that we can really make inferences that, yeah, a lot of these things matter. And again, they matter most for the kids that are getting the least. Yeah. So like society-wide bang for your buck, we are spending our bucks in all the wrong places. Yeah, well, yeah. So we're, we're certainly spending a lot of those extra bucks in the wrong places the $900 yeah. extra per pupil in you know one of the wealthiest communities in Wisconsin that may not be the best use of the money yeah. right you know title 1 funding we we have some sort of national level funding policies that try to more equitably distribute funds school districts you know to varying degrees have policies to try to more equitably distribute funds is there any information about how that those sort of efforts compare to the sort of private money that comes into schools? Yeah, you know, it's really variable by state. So for California, we at the state level have really required a lot of equity. My impression is that in Illinois in particular, that those are the most inequitable schools. So apparently Illinois mm. has very few rules on how disparate spending can be and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I look at the schools in our neighborhood, a school with 200 kids that gets an extra, even if it's an extra $1,000 per kid for various Title I, uh, English language learner, special ed, whatever it is that has this sort of extra money come in, it's 200000 extra dollars, which the school around the corner raises $250,000 from the yes. PTA. That like attempted equity from a funding level has been immediately right. erased. Small dollar attempts that we have tried to make at a either national or district level to move towards more equity in funding rather than equality in funding are counteracted by the private philanthropy money that comes in through all the various right. means. I know that some districts have different rules about what they allow outside funding to cover. You can raise money to free up the budget because you have paid for all of these other things that are, quote, you know, allowed by these district policies. Right. Like the school no longer has to buy supplies because the PTA has right. bought everything that they'll ever need. So now there is that money to to hire. You know, I think right. I, I think what, what I'm trying to get at is like all the different ways that, you know, that we can game the system. So so there are these rules that are put in place for a good reason. But yet there's always a workaround. 
No, I think that's right. And, you know, I think about money being kind of like water, right, in these sorts of ways. It's going to find a way. The people with the money are going to find a way to improve the situation for yeah. their own schools, for their own kids, for their own districts. I think about the this sort of like PTA pooling and some of the other ways that we're thinking about charity around giving to schools. When we're talking about giving money to somebody else, we're not talking about actually integrating with them, right? Yeah. We're When we're talking about giving away something that we have, it's a temporary thing. So it lasts as long as we feel like we have something to give away. Right. And it's not actually bringing us any closer to anybody else. It's not helping us understand anybody else. Right. And... And I think it gives us a pass to then not actually put in as much energy or work into the things that will actually make the systems more equal right. rather than just temporarily, you know, reassigning some dollars. Mm-hmm. It really erases the sense of maybe debt, right? Like that some of us, you know, have more through no good reason, right? Like because we were born white and or wealthy and structural racism and white supremacy and all, and all of these other things, right? So this idea of charity, I wonder how it comes to matter in funding schools and inequitably funding schools. Particularly for public services, These are public schools. These are schools that, you know, we should all want them all to succeed and we should all want them all to be well-funded. We should all want them all to be giving a good education to to all the kids because this is a society we're all going to live in, right? We, we live here. This is, this is our future, right? That's, that's not just hollow words in this case to look at our schools as charitable cases is in some ways offensive to me. That's not what it should be, right? Again, it should this everybody recognizing as as part of the community and as part of community building and state building and, and all of that, that we should all be concerned about all of the schools and about all of the kids in those schools. And yeah, to me, looking at this, you know, in terms of charity cheapens it you know, just doesn't put the value on it that it Mm -hmm. should have. I think that that's part of the problem with charity in general is then it's up to individual people to choose what's worthy and what's valuable versus what's not. Yeah. If we all agree that public schools are really important, then we should be willing to pay the tax dollars to fund them all, to make them all successful, you know, not have to worry about, you know, who gets the, the ear of the biggest corporation in town to get the, the donation? That's just that's something wrong with that. So, you know, this is the Integrated Schools podcast to, to try to like tie this all back to integration. What is the benefit that comes from more integrated schools How does integration help alleviate some of these issues? Well, again, going back to some of the sociological research on inequity, for example, and again, the the book by Putnam, Our Kids, part of the argument is that the increase of inequity and the increase in people's willingness to pay their taxes for things that don't directly benefit them, to move to a charitable system, a lot of that has to do with our lack of integration and the fact that the very wealthy don't know people that are living paycheck to paycheck. Right. And, and again, I don't, I don't think we do our, our kids any favors. I don't think we do ourselves any favors to have these 
different separate enclaves and different separate lives, essentially. Again, it's, it's not what makes a functioning society. It's not what makes a functioning democracy. You know, there has to be an ability to understand the situation of other people. And that's what you really lose when you continue segregated schools and segregated neighborhoods and segregated communities. Again, whether we're talking racial, religious, and it's certainly socioeconomic. Yeah, and it sort of it requires that level of like distance from somebody in that situation to feel like my kid needs this, but that other kid doesn't. Right. And again, well, I paid for that, so yes, my kid gets that. Okay. What about the other kids? <laughs> right. If they and if the other kids are other kids that you don't know, that you don't have any personal relationship, no connection to, then it's it's much easier to. Right sort of live with right. that. Well, yeah. And, and again, from a public policy perspective, if you've got people who simply cannot fathom why federal workers who didn't get two paychecks, why those folks were going to food banks, if you can't <laughs> understand that, if that truly right. is boggling to you, that there are people that live where two paychecks makes a difference, how are we supposed to make public policy? About, any, about, about anything, anything right, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. How are we? Because the people making this decision in this example live so far away from the reality of life for, you know, half the population. You know, are there any last either stories or bits of data that you think would be helpful for our listeners? So I do have one, one example that I wrote down because, again, I, it's sort of sad and horrifying. It's, it's Chicago. So wealthy, uh, you know, wealthy suburban Chicago suburbs that have really used both PTA and education foundations in particular to, you know, raise tons of money. So what you have in this situation in Chicago, 41 schools raising over seven and a half million dollars a year, over $300 per pupil in additional spending. At the same time, a poorer school on the south side of Chicago, also able to raise money, but able to raise $8,000. But the best part is in where the money went. So in those wealthy schools, they were paying for, again, full-time and part-time teachers to do sort of the supplemental things, like like music and libraries that maybe some would argue shouldn't be supplemental, but computer (laughs) labs and that sort of thing. So this is what those wealthy schools are using it for. The bulk of the $8,000 for the poor school was going to help fund transportation so students could get to school. Mm. So again, not only is the need greater, the needs are quite different, you know, and in this case, it was a matter of, we need the extra money to help kids get on a bus, help kids get here. Just so they can show up in the building. Forget about what happens once they get here, just so they can even be here. Exactly. Forget about are there teachers, are there books, are there libraries, just get them to the building. I don't have any great solutions to this. I mean, we do. It's not a fast one. It's not a fast one. I may have said this before, but it's generational work. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I totally, I totally believe that. And I I absolutely agree with you, which makes the question we're talking about right now all the more relevant because you're talking about the kids in schools right now who are that next generation and who, if they don't see it happening, it's another generation lost. Yeah. If they don't see, again, if they don't see those, those kids that are others than them, they don't see the struggle of other people, for example, in any way. If everyone just looks like them and comes from that same background as that they come from, and they are all going to the same small set of colleges and universities when they're done, those other folks 
get left behind and further behind and further forgotten. Further behind and further forgotten. On some level, that's sort of what this whole thing's about, right, Courtney? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, we're very grateful to Dr. Arsenault for sharing her insights on all the ways that private money props up the inequities that exist in our public school system. Yeah, I mean, you know, even if in the grand scheme of education funding in the country, we're not talking about huge numbers. I think it's it's the disparities that are really striking. The fact that the schools that tend to already have so much are the ones getting all the additional stuff, the money, the computers, the volunteer hours. And, you know, all of that just exacerbates these existing inequities. Yeah, the private stuff that props up public ed, right? Like that is, in fact, based on opportunity hoarding in the legal or quasi-legal ways. You know, they're not the Operation Varsity Blues ways. Right. (laughs) But certainly rethinking how we use charity to let us off the hook for our racist system of education. You know, charity, pity, and, and distance shouldn't be the ways that we as whitened or privileged families focus our work around educational justice. Skin in the game, baby. That's right. I mean, separate with charity is still not equal. Yeah. So this is going to be the last episode of season two. Courtney, how do you feel about season two? I feel good. I think we probably could have used a bit more planning, (laughs) like usual, right? But we covered a lot of good stuff. Yeah. What about you? I think we made progress from season one, but uh, (laughs) we we planned a little bit better. Uh, But there's probably still some learning to be done there. You know, looking back at the episodes, I really liked uh, Kirkland and McRae. Those ones sort of stand out. It's really, really good conversations that keep coming back to me. And I don't know that it got much easier to make the podcast, but I do think I had a better idea of what to expect. So maybe I wasn't quite so surprised by the work involved. Yeah. I guess I I think thinking about the whole season, I think what I'm most excited about was the increase in listener feedback, the questions from listeners, comments from listeners, the, you know, mundane to the profound. I'm I'm very grateful for the perspectives people have shared, the ways people push us to rethink things, to, you know, encourage us to see different viewpoints and remind us that we can never be clear enough in our language. (laughs) Right. Thank you, listeners, and please keep it coming. Yes. And, you know, thank you also for all of your donations. Yeah. I know that was one of your least favorite parts, Courtney, but we did it. And it actually worked. It resulted in some donations. It did. Yeah. It feels weird um, to be asking, but the costs are real. So, Andrew, we just tried to calculate the amount of time this takes. And we're figuring what it's about 40 hours or so of work goes into each of these episodes. Yeah. So that some of you are finding this valuable enough to donate means means quite a bit. Yep. And just a reminder, integratedschools.org, hit that donate button. Thank you very much in advance. Yeah. So the plan moving forward and, you know, we're kind of making this up as we go, but the plan moving forward is to take a little while off and come back with a third season, I guess. And as many of you guys probably know, the 65th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education is in May. And so we'll be we'll be definitely diving into that. Yeah. Yeah. We've got some great things planned. I think, you know, uh, most people recognize Brown as a pretty seminal event in school integration history, but I know certainly the version of it that I thought I knew was significantly incomplete. So um, I'm going to be doing some more learning and we've got some great conversations planned. Yeah. And we have the uh, wonderful Dr. Naliwe Rooks, who wrote uh, Cutting School and talks about segronomics. So if you haven't read Mm. her book, please do. She's wonderful. It's wonderful. 
Yeah. And we've got a conversation scheduled with Dr. Rucker Johnson. He's a researcher out of UC Berkeley, and he's got a new book coming out on April 16th. It's called Children of the Dream, Why Integration Works. I've got it pre-ordered. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Yeah, me too. And we'll also be talking with Dr. Amanda Lewis about her book, um, which was co-authored with John Diamond called Despite Their Best Intentions, How Racial Inequality Thrives in Good Schools. If you have not read it, uh, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Yeah, that was a great one. And we got some more conversations with parents about the smog and other plans that, I don't know, may or may not actually happen, but <laughs> but we're working on it. We want to talk about middle schools, the experiences of Asian American, biracial, mixed families in this work, uh, teachers' perspectives on segregation, what parent engagement really means, school ratings, on and on and on. But what do you want to hear, listeners? Send us your ideas and questions that you're grappling with by voice memo or email to hello at integratedschools.org. And I think we're also going to try out a new segment called Crap I'm Not Saying Anymore. (laughs) You know, we recognize through these conversations, engaging this work, we're constantly growing and evolving. And uh, there's stuff that I used to say that I'm trying not to say anymore. So we're going to try to talk about some of those things. So if there's stuff you think we should stop saying, let us know. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll stop saying it and talk about why we're not saying it anymore. Yeah, so while we're away, Integrated Schools is continuing its work. There's the new webpage, tutor pledge, local chapter development. We're working on a kind of how not to be a colonizer guide. And there is a, you know, just huge, amazing group of volunteers who are working on all of this. And we are unbelievably, unbelievably grateful. Yeah, big thanks to everyone who donates their time, their energy, and, and their thought to this project. And Courtney, big thanks to you. And you. I'm very grateful to get to have these conversations with you, with such amazing guests. To be able to think about these things, it's a privilege, and I appreciate it. So, yeah. Even if it means that a quote-unquote 10-minute call turns into an hour and 45 minutes, <laughs> as it so often does. So awesome. I'm grateful to be in this with you as we try to know better and do better. Ditto. See you soon. Ditto.